Welcome everyone. We're just going to wait one second for folks to filter in. I see a lot of familiar names coming in, which is really great. And it looks like people are getting pretty settled in. So I think we might as well get started. So thank you everyone for being here. Um, welcome to our webinar on understanding the legal aid system in Ontario. Um, I really do want to say thank you for making the time to be here. I know that this is an incredibly challenging time for everyone to be just keeping on top of their basic work obligations and family needs and to be taking time out of your schedule to do, you know, extension and professional development stuff is uh, pretty incredible. And so we, we really, really appreciate it. Um, and we're really happy to be discussing this topic today. Um, you know, the, the legal aid system has got to be one of the most vital, most poorly understood public services um, that we have in the province. And it, it's really just not an easy thing to learn about in concrete detail without having had to navigate the system yourself. You know, despite the best efforts of lots of lawyers trying to make it legible, it's, it's just not something that most people are familiar with, even sometimes people who've taught law for a lot of years even a lot of lawyers. Uh, you know, we work extensively with, with law students and with the private bar. Um, and I, I think you'd be surprised how many, how many people, even in the legal profession, don't really fully understand the suite of what legal aid offers and the context in which it works. So it's a great thing to understand and to teach. And we're really excited that you'll be bringing it into your classrooms. Um, I think most people know that there's something out there called legal aid, uh, but the details really tend to get lost. We, this comes up for us a lot when we are uh, in classrooms, often uh, playing OGEN's access to justice simulation game, which you may have heard us talk about, where we dig into what it's like to actually try to get affordable legal services uh, in Ontario. And we've seen a lot of really common misconceptions from students, including that you know legal aid is only criminal law services, which it's not, um, that anyone who can't afford a lawyer automatically gets legal aid, of course, much more complicated than that. Um, and, you know, most most hurtfully uh, that people seem to think that you get a worse lawyer through legal aid, which is an absolutely horrible, appalling myth that just persists throughout time. So uh, we're not probably not going to, you know, completely be able to tackle every public misconception about legal aid. Um, but uh, I'm sure you have a lot of further examples that you could draw from your own classes. We have a phenomenal slate of experts uh, with us today who are going to help demystify some of that process and uh, talk to you a little bit about um, how much great work happens in the legal aid system. Um, but before we get into all that, given that I believe everyone on our panel today is based in Toronto, I want to acknowledge that we're calling in from the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and that we continue to benefit from the care shown by those communities to this land over thousands of years. And that extends through the present day, uh, as thousands of First Nations and Métis people and Inuit continue to call this place home. Um, and those communities, of course, are really at the center and have always been leaders in legal struggles for both human and ecological justice that have so much overlap with the work that the legal aid system does. Um, so without further ado, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to have presentations from each of our three speakers that are going to be about 15 minutes each. Uh, at the end, we'll save time for questions. So please go ahead and use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen to submit any questions that you have. 
Um, we are recording today's session and we'll be making it available on OGEN's YouTube page in the next couple of days. So if anything happens, your connection drops, you wanna share this with a friend, um, that'll all be available to you. Okay, so let me introduce our panelists for today. Uh, so up first, Simone Byrne is currently Criminal Policy Counsel at Legal Aid Ontario. She practiced as defense counsel, including as duty counsel for about five years before moving to the head office, where she initially worked on developing training and educational materials for LAO's criminal lawyers. LAO is Legal Aid Ontario, you're gonna hear that a lot. She now works on systemic advocacy and program development, which she loves, but she misses the clients and the buzz that comes from being in court. That said, her two kids provide her with plenty of buzz and remind her all the time about how important it is to teach young people about what justice is, why information is power, especially in the justice system. And following Simone, we're going to hear from Lenny Abramowicz. Uh, Lenny is the executive director of the Association of Community Legal Clinics of Ontario, a position he's held since the year 2000. Before that, Lenny was the executive director and a staff lawyer at Neighborhood Legal Services in downtown Toronto. In addition, he's worked at and been on the board of directors of other community legal clinics in Ontario. Lenny's the chair of the Alliance for Sustainable Legal Aid, which is a group that represents Ontario's frontline legal aid service providers. He's been on the board of and worked with numerous community-based nonprofit groups. He's written articles on legal issues, on community clinics, and on the topic of nonprofit governance. In 2012, Lenny was given the Legal Aid Leader Award by the Canadian Bar Association. In 2018, he was awarded the Law Society of Medal by the Law Society of Ontario, and going in reverse chronological order, Lenny graduated from McGill University with an LLB and a BCL in 1985. Uh, and then last but not least, we're gonna hear from Rose Mew. Rose completed her law degree at Queen's University in 2004. She was called to the bar in 2005. She articled with the city of Toronto's legal division and joined LAO as criminal duty counsel in 2006. She is passionate about her role as duty counsel and happy to assist low-income individuals as they navigate the legal system. She's also a scout leader and has organized court visits for youth members to observe the legal system in action. So Simone is going to start us off uh, by talking about some of the core services offered by Legal Aid Ontario. I'm just gonna share my screen here so we can get her PowerPoint up. There we go. Ah, look at that. Amazing. Ta-da. Ta-da. This is great. <laughs> I, uh, this is great. This is great. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. So thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm going to kick us off and uh, I am going to tell you not only about criminal law, but about some of the core services that legal aid offers in general. We have a great slate here. I mean, Lenny's here. No one can better talk about the clinic system than Lenny. So you've kind of got the la creme de la creme there. So I'm, I'm really, I don't even touch on the clinic system because I'm talking about the services that LAO, that like ourselves, like our kind of head organization uh, provides. So I'm going to go through the certificate services and um, duty council world, which Rose is of course part of. So, uh, so with that uh, being said, if we could go to the next slide, um, which would be or do I go to the next? Oh, no, you do. Okay, perfect. Wonderful. So in general, um, also, by the way, when I was doing the research for this, uh, the Legal Aid Ontario website wasn't working, which was amazing. So I was like trying to click on things. So um, this, this actually comes from our Wikipedia entry, because I was trying to find um, something that was accurate, but something that was kind of well worded. Oh, go, go back to that first one, Michelle. Thank you. Which is funny, because the Wikipedia entry really needs to be updated. There was a lot of real misinformation there. So it's 
going next on my list, maybe not today, but, uh, but anyway, don't trust the Wikipedia site if you happen to want to know what legal aid does in general. Anyway, some of it's right, some of it's not so right. So we are a publicly funded, publicly accountable, not-for-profit corporation. Um, most of our funds come from the Ministry of the Attorney General, which is, of course, a provincial uh, body. Um, MAG is, uh, MAG, so I call it MAG, sorry, um, which is also confusing because I work with a lovely woman named Mary Oxy Gao, and her initials are also MAG. So when you talk about MAG told me, got to really clarify. Anyway, so uh, so uh, MAG provides about 70% uh, of our funding, um, and then the Law Foundation of Ontario also provides some of our funding, and then um, we do have some kick in from the feds. Uh, I recently last year got a grant from the federal government on uh, creating more uh, data tracking for racialized people in the bail system. So those are kind of one-offs though. I'd say like our primary funder is of course the Ministry of the Attorney General. Um, Doug Ford recently reduced our, our funding kind of substantially, which you might've heard about, uh, but you know, we're making do as best we can because they are, they are pretty much the bread and butter uh, funder. But anyway, so they are publicly funded, publicly accountable. We get audited every year, which is great fun for our finance department. Um, and then uh, through Legal Aid, we have multiple ways that clients uh, can and applicants can access our services. So we have a toll-free number that you can call from all over the province. Um, and then, of course, we have the local uh, in-person locations, the court offices. So Rose works um, at, I'm, I think you're at 311 Jarvis? No, Scarborough? Okay, no, yes. Yes, Scarborough. Scarborough, perfect. Yes, Scarborough. So uh, we have some duty council offices, uh, at least in criminal, we actually have a duty council office at every single criminal court across Ontario. There's 56. And uh, in family as well, we have some, I'm going to take you through that. And those are uh, staff offices. And then of course, we have the certificate system, which um, incorporates our payments to private lawyers who take on something called the certificate, which is kind of what I think of as like a voucher for services. Um, and then of course, we have the community legal clinics, uh, which are which we fund, but um, I would say are most separate and apart from what we do. Technically, they're funded under the umbrella of legal aid, but they have the most autonomy. Uh, we kind of give them a certain amount of funds, and then they figure it out. Uh, on their on their own. So it's not individual frontline services that we provide. It's uh, the clinics themselves provide the poverty law services. And of course, I'll let Lenny kind of speak to that. Um, I did find out, according to Wikipedia, that uh, we provide more than 1 million assists to low income Ontario residents every year. I don't know if that number is accurate. It seems low. But uh, I mean, at least at least a million. So anyway, that's kind of legal aid in a nutshell. You do have to be low income, which is a financial threshold, which I will speak again in one of the slides coming up. So uh, in terms of what we provide, again, this is kind of legal aid, uh, the head office uh, and, and legal aid services that we directly to provide to frontline people. Um, I've kind of split them into uh, staff services which includes duty council services and then certificate. So first speaking about staff services, there's a bunch of really fun acronyms here. I'm gonna take you through them. But ultimately, if it says an F, it's family. If it has a C, it's criminal. If it has an R, it's refugee. And those are really the three main areas of law that we assist with. So FLIC is Family Legal Information Center. CLO is criminal legal law office. You'd think that we'd come up with like some standardized form, but no, that would be way too easy. Um, FLASC is family law service center, duty council. That's pretty easy. So duty council offices, DC, and then RLO is a refugee law office. 
And then, and then I recently found out, I think that we have like an ILSO or something, which is fun, found that out, uh, Immigration Law Service Office, I think. And then senior counsel. So there's senior counsel in both uh, family and in criminal and uh, some senior counsel and immigration refugee who work kind of in association with the offices. So these are actual lawyers who work directly for legal aid, they are staff paid. I, I think of them as like the emergency uh, doctor room lawyers. So they're kind of the ones that deal with you when you're first arrested, uh, for example, in criminal, when you're arrested for and held for bail, uh, duty counsel are the ones that can go. And if it's a simple enough um, issue that doesn't involve a significant amount of time or, or taking it to trial, duty counsel are often able to resolve the entire issue themselves. Um, they do a lot of complex stuff, but uh, if it's if you require a specialist, that generally goes to a certificate. So um, that's how it works in criminal. And uh, it, we again, we have senior counsel or criminal law offices where you might be able to get one of those specialists who also are staff lawyers at Legal Aid. But I'd say the majority of what we do is duty counsel work, which is kind of frontline services in courthouse. If you think of it as the emergency doctor uh, kind of metaphor, that makes the most sense. Um, so they provide direct case services to people who are, and you do have to be financially and legally eligible for these services, uh, which we'll go into in, in a slide or two. Uh, and then again, it's in family, child custody, criminal and immigration refugee. So those are our three main areas of law. Um, and uh, for, oh, there isn't, sorry, I put down there, there's a refugee law office. There's only three, actually three staff uh, lawyer offices and that's one in Toronto, Hamilton and Ottawa. For duty counsel, so this was kind of going through the information that DC does, and I'll, I'll let Rose speak to it quite a bit more, uh, but bail services, guilty pleas, negotiations, resolutions, et cetera. So kind of um, really the standard stuff that takes place in criminal court. Uh, the vast majority of cases in criminal court uh, resolve without a trial. So people don't know that when they think of criminal law, they generally think trials and like these big massive cases. Um, that go to trial and have juries. And the reason you hear about those is because they're so infrequent. Um, the trial rate across Ontario is actually 3.3%, which means that 96%, more than 96% of cases actually resolve without a trial actually happening. So the main bread and butter of the criminal system is, uh, is duty counsel and senior counsel and certificate counsel resolving which means that the matter is either withdrawn or the matter or the person resolves in a different way. So uh, perhaps they pled guilty, perhaps the matter was diverted. I'll, I'll let Rose speak to kind of like what all of those uh, options are uh, as a duty counsel because she's probably did one this morning. So uh, because it really is the bread and butter of kind of what duty counsel do. Um, I always say when my friends ask me, you know, cause I, I do come from the criminal defense thing. Uh, you know, like, oh, well, criminal defense, like, how can you represent people who you think are guilty? And uh, yeah, like, I always like to say, and people don't know this, I only learned about this when I was policy counsel, 50% um, of all charges are withdrawn. So what that means is one out of every two cases, one out of every two people charged are going to have the charges it, it taken away. Meaning that there's a very good case to say they never should have been charged in the first place. <laughs> so it's our job to make sure that people are held, the system is, is held to account. Um, oftentimes the biggest role of a defense counsel is figuring out the best resolution, which is the best, possibly the best guilty plea. So, um, you know, no defense counsel just represents quote, like innocent people. It doesn't make sense. It's not part of the job. And I wouldn't want that to be part of the job because, uh, um, your relationship with clients and, and your, uh, relationship in the justice system is just as important for the people who um, are guilty as the people that are possibly innocent. And it's, it's your job to really push the crown and push the system. 
so that's something that duty counsel do and senior counsel and obviously these staff lawyers do. Uh, in terms of family, and again, I'm, I'm going to be briefer, of course, about family and immigration. I don't have any experience in that area, but um, family law information centers are kind of similar to duty council offices, but they don't provide as much summary, uh, as much front class service. So they, they're information. So you do provide advice counsel, which is like summary legal advice, but they don't actually track the matter. So duty council regularly can take a matter on and then negotiate it and the client can come back and uh, the duty council can end up resolving it days, weeks, months down the road. But uh, that's not an, a service that um, the family the Family Law Information Center provides, but that is a service that the Family Law Service Center provides, just to keep you on your toes. So, uh, so there, so that's kind of the difference there. And then immigration and refugee, as I mentioned, um, Ottawa has uh, Ottawa is the only one with an actual duty council office, from my understanding, that gives summary legal advice, um, which is kind of more similar to the duty council realm as opposed to the full RLO, which are hardcore staff lawyers working on cases from beginning to end, and that's the refugee law office. So those are kind of the services there. Thank you, Madir. And that leads us to the certificate services. So certificates are just a fancy way of saying voucher. It's kind of like monopoly money um, in the sense that legal aid uh, provides these vouchers to clients to say, this is, you have a voucher for legal services, go find a lawyer that will accept it. So uh, many lawyers accept legal aid certificates and many lawyers don't. Um, some lawyers who do uh, might only represent uh, clients on legal aid certificates for specific matters. Uh, so they might only do drugs and guns or gangs or something like that, kind of more serious things. And then you have um, lots of lawyers who specialize in youth criminal, for example, or some lawyers who specialize in Indigenous matters, uh, some that specialize in domestic violence. So um, it really depends on your specialty. Uh, some lawyers do both criminal and family. Um, I'd say that's rare. Most, most lawyers are, I'd say, either criminal or family, but you do get the full service firm that kind of does them all. Uh, which you know is it's up to you as a and at to up to you as an applicant or a client to decide who you want to give your lawyer to. I mean your voucher too. So it's you of counsel of choice in that way. And that's a really big difference between certificate services and duty counsel services. Um, duty counsel, which is the staff lawyers that are employed by legal aid, so the ones that I just spoke of, um, when an applicant or a client comes in and is eligible for services they don't get to pick the duty council. They get the duty council that's kind of assigned to that court that's in resolution services uh, or that might be in set date court that day or bail court that day. Um, occasionally you have a duty council that specializes in something. Uh, so indigenous duty council, for example, or who specializes in Gladue court. And, uh, and then, so if you're indigenous and you come in um, and you're charged with matters and you're in bail court, you might have that particular lawyer come in, but there's not really the same council of choice that really... Uh, works um, or that really exists as there is in certificate. So in voucher, we literally just give you the monopoly money and say, this is worth this much, go and find a lawyer that you'd like. Um, and it kind of works the same in criminal family and immigration. Uh, it does cover the matter from beginning to end, but it depends on whether it's hours or services. So in immigration and refugee, it does cover the whole file, but it's kind of like a baseline. And then you kind of add to it in chunks, um, depending on what services the, the client needs. Uh, and same with criminal. So um, in criminal, there's kind of like two different ways that you can uh, go about it. If the matter is set down for trial, then the lawyer bills by tariff, which is like hourly. If it's not set for trial, they just get like a big block fee. And in family, the initial certificate, same thing is, is 12 to 15 hours. And then uh, they ask for more depending on, um, on what the client needs. Oh, next slide, please. See the play. Thank you. So these are the tests. So the, this is pretty important uh, because a person is only eligible uh, for um, 
for a certificate if you meet both the financial and the legal eligibility tests. The financial test is the one where you actually have to be seen to be making under a certain amount. So people, for example, who are on social assistance or on ODSP will always qualify uh, or always be eligible financially for services. Um, and they will always be eligible for at least a minimum duty council services. Uh, and then we come to the legal eligibility test. And that, of course, changes depending on the area of law. So in criminal, um, if a person is facing jail time or if they're from a specialty community, a what we consider a priority community, uh, which is racialized indigenous victim of domestic violence or has some serious mental health issues or and the duty council says this matter should go to trial or requires a certificate uh, because you kind of need that specialist. Um, then you can be legally eligible for that certificate voucher, but otherwise um, you would, you know, use duty council to resolve the main difference between duty council and a certificate counsel is the ability for someone to represent you at trial. So some duty counsel do do trials, but, uh, and senior counsel, for example, um, the staff, some of the staff lawyer offices do do trials, but the uh, pretty much across the board, I'd say the standard, the baseline is that duty counsel aren't uh, putting your matters down for trial, whereas certificate counsel can. Now, as I mentioned before, it's a very low trial rate. So uh, duty counsel generally cover the gamut of everything else other than trials, but they don't do judicial pretrials or prelims, for example. So uh, so that would be, if, if a person requires that, then there's a chance that they would go to certificate instead. So that's the legal eligibility test for criminal. And then for family, again, it's kind of the same thing, but just to kind of uh, stated differently, it's, it's legal and client complexity. So if it's a complex legal matter, or if the client has complex needs, for example, if domestic violence is an issue, or if there's a contested custody dispute, then a certificate would issue and the person would go and find a private counsel to represent them. Um, child protection, my uh, my colleague who works with, with me at policy said, it's pretty much guaranteed to get a certificate for child protection because they're all pretty complicated. So I said, all right, thank you. The next one, see who play. There we go, other services. Um, Legal Aid Ontario, of course, I don't provide frontline services anymore. So I wanted to really emphasize, even though there are many people, and I'd say the backbone of Legal Aid is of course providing frontline services. There are a lot of us working in the background, trying to make things better on a systemic, uh, in a systemic way. So I'm policy counsel, yay. So criminal policy counsel works in line with the strategies with frontline supports to try and uh, kind of advocate for systemic change based on case law, based on uh, pro like program support. So um, developing different practice directives that might make client service better, um, application processes. Uh, and of course we always do it in line with the client strategies. And I actually work in the same office with the client strategy council. So we used to have a client strategy council for domestic violence and mental health, but unfortunately due to budget cuts, um, we no longer have them, but we still have a strategy council for the racialized community strategy and indigenous uh, one. So I work closely with them to make sure that communities are taken into account when we create any new programs or when we're trying to increase uh, eligibility or trying to make services better on the front lines. So that's kind of what policy council does. I also just answer any question, like I'm kind of like the, if the criminal question comes into legal aid, it ends up on my desk. So, and whether that's from frontline service or whether that's uh, from a client or counsel, certificate counsel, et cetera, it's, it's usually me. So I'm kind of the catch-all there. Um, training and support. So that's actually what I did before I came into policy. I worked on uh, training. So I actually developed the bail and everything but bail training guides for frontline staff. 
um, and I held a, a specific a conference actually for both frontline and staff uh, and certificate practitioners on the nexus between criminal and mental health, um, because a lot of frontline duty counsel uh, don't have the opportunity to see what happens at an NCR hearing or don't know what happens in a fitness hearing or whose onus it is or what the balance, if it's a balance probabilities or beyond. Anyway, so all this stuff. So I wanted to kind of create something because it's useful for our staff to know. So that's kind of training and development that we do. And even though I've left that department, there's an entire like staff that goes around and starts trying to train and make sure that people are, are doing and, and what they should be doing and, and know what they should know. Um, Central Operations, it is a very big organization. You know, we have 300 and something uh, lawyers, frontline lawyers. So getting everyone to uh, be up to date on the case law and uh, and different processes. And for example, COVID, we changed a bunch of different things because of COVID, how we take applications, how we interact with clients, um, who's eligible for certain services. So that all comes out of my department. And then we use the beautiful central operations department to try and push it out to the front lines and certificate staff to make sure they know. Sometimes it lands, sometimes it doesn't. It's a work in process. Uh, so anyway, and then LAO law, I'd say LAO law is the most uh, loved part of um, head office because LAO Law are the amazing think tankers. They answer questions, legal questions. They create memos. They It's like a library of just like these brains just sitting there solving legal issues. So they are absolutely, they're really loved by frontline staff, not only duty counsel, but certificate staff alike. So um, one of, that's one of the benefits that we offer when you do take on certificates as a private lawyer, you get access to LAO law. So uh, you get access to the entire filing cabinet of anything and everything you could ever want to know, um, legislative summaries, new case law, stuff like that. So that's our think tank. And then just my uh, test cases are also something that we do, which is very important. Um, I sit on the test case uh, committee and test cases are the most fun because you have private lawyers who apply and say, here's this massive test case uh, or this case that's coming down and it's going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada and it's going to change the way things work. So we get to actually sit there and consider, um, is this going to have a, like a widespread impact on our clients? Is it beneficial? Uh, what groups is it beneficial for? Is it not? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of uh, that's kind of the test cases. And I think, I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell in my time limit. I'm sorry, I speak very quickly, but this is recorded so you can go back or you can also ask me any questions. So that's kind of LAO core services in a nutshell. Thank you so much, Simone. That was a whirlwind, but it was extremely informative. <laughs> There's I mean, just a lot to cover. There's a lot to cover. Um, up next, uh, Lenny's going to talk about the community legal clinic system. Thanks. Uh, and yes, there is a lot to cover, and uh, I think Simone did a great job of trying to condense it down. We were joking before uh, before the rest of you joined, and I said that I have a four-hour version of my presentation, so I'm not going to subject any of you to uh, to that four-hour version, but I'll try to uh, touch on some of the main uh, the main points. Um, I'm focusing, as mentioned, I'm focusing on Ontario's community clinic. Uh, system. What I'll do is I'll provide a brief history and some and, and what are the fundamental characteristics of uh, community clinics in, in Ontario, and then give you an idea of what the current uh, situation is the, uh, uh, with the community clinics in, in this province. So I promise not to go too far back or spend too much time on history, but it is important uh, to some extent in understanding the clinic model and how it's distinct from uh, many of the services that Simone just talked about. Uh, you got to go back in history. Um, so legal aid in Ontario did begin in the 1960s and it 
when legal aid was created, it was part of the expansion of social services programs across uh, the country, you know, whether you're talking about Medicare or Canada Pension, legal aid was part of, uh, of that in, uh, in Canada and as well in Ontario. When it was created, it was when it was first created here in Ontario, um, it was actually not all those things that Simone talked about, but it was just a certificate model. So that one aspect uh, that uh, existed and there were certificates at that time, it was just for criminal law and for the most serious uh, criminal, uh, criminal offenses. Uh, and why that's important is you have to understand uh, that when legal aid was first created, not just in Ontario, but in other parts of the, uh, of the Western world, um, it wasn't done by accident. There were particular models that were looked at and the certificate model, which was the most prevalent one in, uh, in, in Canada and United States and other jurisdictions, it came, it was predicated on a small liberal notion of equality that prevailed at the time. And what I mean by this is that the assumption there was that the way you achieve equality, this was the philosophy at the time, and I'm not making this up, you go to Hansard and if you go to the, 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 the basin discussions that went on at, uh, at the Law Society who were initially charged with running the legal aid system in Ontario, these are the things that were talked about, which is that the way you achieve equality in society, certainly in the legal ed, uh, world and access to justice is by treating everyone the same. You start with the assumption that, well, everybody is a millionaire or everybody's a poor is poor, and you don't need to treat them any differently. And the certificate model was created on that premise. And the idea was, as Simone has, uh, has described, what you do with the certificate model is if somebody shows that they're poor enough, then they're given a certificate, a voucher, and in theory, that makes it all okay. That puts them in the same place as it does Conrad Black or any or Galen Weston or any millionaire because they now have the certificate and they can access justice in precisely the same way that a multimillionaire could. There are a few caveats to that, like they'd have to find a lawyer who would take a legal aid certificate at the, at the rate that legal aid pays, et cetera, et cetera. But that was the thinking behind it when, uh, when, when, when the system was created. And to be clear, this was a magnificent step forward. Prior to the creation of legal aid, what you did is you had people who either relied on pro bono, that is somebody doing it for free or slumming it. So you had, you had a corporate lawyer who decides to do a murder trial because they figure that's uh, you know, it's something that they're going to do in their, in their spare time, or the court would appoint somebody to do, uh, to do a hearing, or people went unrepresented, which is actually what happened most of the time. Um, so this was a... A spectacular step forward, the creation of legal aid in Ontario and in, in other jurisdictions. But there was also, and very soon after that, there, were rec there was recognition that there were limitations to this model. And most fundamental was the realization that the legal problems of most low-income people and vulnerable people in, in, in our society are not the same as the problems of the middle class. In fact, not to go into too much detail, but there are surveys that show, uh, polls that show that, that, that the average middle-class person in Ontario, or in Canada, sorry, has six discrete interactions with the legal system throughout their entire lives. You know, they buy a house, they incorporate a business, whatever. But for middle-class people, they're entirely discrete. 
that is not the situation for low-income people, not for the clients that I served or for the ones that, uh, that, that most of us who, uh, who work in legal aid serve. The people who, 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 uh, who are in low-income uh, in, low in our society are constantly enveloped by lawyers. One much more articulate uh, writer uh, put, uh, they are constantly bumping into sharp legal objects. That is the world of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of low income and vulnerable people. And that specifically that the problems that they tend to have are not discrete, but they come from the system itself. It comes from the fact, not that they are a bad person, but rather that they are poor and that they are powerless in our society, that they are not landlords and employers. They are always the people on the other side of the, uh, on the, other side of the stick. And therefore the solutions to their legal problems cannot just be individual or else all you'd be doing is putting band-aids on a thousand bleeding cuts every day, but rather that they are systemic in nature and that the solutions have to be uh, built that way. So at the same time that people were recognizing these critiques of the traditional legal aid model, new notions of equality were arising. And in society, and if you look at the literature at the time, we began to realize that if you really want to move towards equality, not just in the area of access to justice, but in that area as well, we need to understand the particular issues of the communities that we are serving, of the disempowered people, of individuals and communities that we are serving, and tailor our services to those particular needs. And that is what led to the birth of the community clinic model. Initially in the United States, some of you may be surprised to know, uh, seeing what's going on down there, uh, that that was the birthplace of that progressive model. The uh, United States in the 1960s, the late 60s, part of Lyndon Johnson's uh, war on poverty. That was a point in time when governments had, war, had wars against poverty as opposed to wars on the poor, which has uh, been more, uh, more typically the case uh, in, the, uh, in, in the last 20 years. Uh, 30 years. But during Johnson's war on poverty, they opened up these storefront community clinics across, uh, across the states. And as with some other things, we came to realize, well, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we in Canada should uh, adopt that. So there was a prime minister at the time who uh, looked at that and thought, well, you know, I'll try that out. And his name, anybody want to guess what his name was? It's similar to the name of a prime minister that we have today. Anyways, was Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister at the time. And he was talking uh, in the United States, they were talking about their, uh, their, uh, uh, the war on poverty. Here, what we were talking about was the just society. That was the uh, that was the motivating philosophy of the uh, of the government in the late '60s and early '70s. And in the early '70s, they brought the community clinic model to Canada, and the federal government initially uh, funded four different community clinics across uh, the country. It quickly became apparent that this was a good idea and communities were clamoring for these types of services. And here in Ontario, we were very fortunate that the conservative government at the time, Bill Davis's government at the time with Roy McMurtry as the attorney general, um, thought that this was a good idea. And there were some really progressive people working within the attorney general's department who to Roy McMurtry's credit, he, he supported and gave enough space to do the work. And they developed uh, community clinic model through the mid and uh, and and uh, and late seventies, and the community clinic model that they created, which was similar to the one in the United States and in England and Australia, it was based on three fundamental principles, and still is based on these three fundamental principles. And the three fundamental princi 
principles are this. First, that the clinic is governed by the community it serves. It's not governed by the attorney general. It's not governed by the funder. Sorry, folks at Legal Aid. It's not governed by the lawyers who work at the community clinic. It's not governed by me, thankfully, for, uh, for, for them. Rather, these are independent community-based organizations who are independent, entirely independent from the government and from the funder. And they are governed by boards of directors that are drawn from the communities that they serve. So it is those communities that determine what the needs of the community are and the services. And so for that reason, the services of a community clinic in Kenora might be different than they are in downtown Toronto. And for good reason, I can't get back to that one in, in a second. So that's the first characteristic. That's the community that governs the clinic. Second characteristic is clinics focus uniquely on poverty law, or sometimes they call it clinic law, but actually the term uh, that's, that's in the new legislation is poverty law, which are issues that disproportionately impact on low income communities. So, I mean, some of that is obvious, straightforward. You can, of course, guess that community clinics don't do a lot of corporate law. They don't do a lot of maritime law. They don't do a lot of real estate law, but they do the law that, they're that disproportionately impact on their communities. And in fact, they focus on issues where there is, and I'm being kind of quite colloquial here, but really where there's an us and a them, when it is absolutely clear who the us is. So for example, welfare recipients are the us and the government, the welfare bureaucracy are the them. Uh, employees, non-unionized employees are the us and the employers are the them. Landlord and tenant law, the tenants are the us and the landlords are the uh, them. Those are the areas that clinics focus on because they are systemic community-based issues that have that, uh, that disproportionately impact on the, uh, on, on, the, on the low income. And you know, it won't surprise most of you to know that as critical as criminal law services are uh, for, uh, if, and to be funded through legal aid, and they must be funded through legal aid, um, the vast majority of low-income people never set foot in a criminal court. The vast majority of low-income people, however, are on social assistance, or they are dealing with a landlord who tries to get illegal rent increases out of them, or they are dealing with an employer who does not uh, pay them their vacation pay or give them uh, proper uh, proper notice or, uh, or, 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 or the requirements of, uh, of the legislation. And low-income communities, these are the issues that they are, that they are disproportionately uh, uh, dealing with. So that's a second criteria that clinics focus on those areas. And then third, clinics use a broad array of services to meet the needs of the communities. And what I mean by that, and this goes back to what I said about before about the new, the prevailing ethos around legal aid was that uh, an access to justice is that you can't just be doing individual work, putting band-aids on all the individual cuts. You must also be doing law reform, public legal education, educating people about their rights, community development. Clinics not only employ lawyers, but they, but they employ community developers who, organ, who organize the communities around the legal issues and educate them and engage in law reform, test cases, pushing back because you cannot simply fix the problems of low-income people by focusing on just the individual or the individual problem. 
So what do we have? We have a community clinic system that is one component of Ontario's legal aid system. And Simone's done a good job in uh, describing that. And the clinics are, uh, are, are, are one, just one component uh, of that. And clinics are independent of, but yet funded almost entirely. By legal, by legal Aid Ontario, by the funding uh, body. There are 72 community clinics in the province of Ontario. 55 of them serve geographic areas. Every geographic area in the province is served by a community clinic. Now, to be clear, some clinics serve a geographic area literally the size of France. That's the Northwest Clinic in Kenora and Rainy River. But there is a clinic for every community. So every community, every person in every community can, uh, can reach out to the clinic. In addition to those 55 clinics, there are 17 other clinics, which we refer to as specialty clinics, that who, where the community is a, still a community clinic, but it's not defined by, geogra by geography. So the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, for example, or the Disability uh, Clinic, you know, their communities are typically uh, on a provincial uh, level, but not uh, geographic. The services are free for all who qualify, and the qualification uh, is similar to, uh, to what uh, Simone uh, pointed out, except there isn't one set of legal cr uh, criteria. It can change from community to community. And what is important to the community of Timmins to Miskaming is not necessarily the same thing that's important in downtown Toronto, uh, although there are certain things that will be the, uh, that will be the same. Um, and most clinics do social assistance, disability pensions, housing issues, uh, in, in, in certain communities, refugee rights, basic employment rights, human rights. These are the types of issues that might vary a little bit from clinic to clinic, but those are often the types of services that the clinic will provide. And it could be anything from summary advice, public education to representation, including up to the Supreme Court of uh, Canada. Um, and then, I'll finish off by saying, and hopefully that gives you a bit of a snapshot of, of the clinics, I'll finish off by saying that, uh, there, that there are many challenges that community clinics face, and uh, I'll mention just two of them. The first is that there are never enough resources. Uh, I am, you can see, though you have uh, your cameras on, can see the color of my hair, and I am old enough and have been in this game long enough to tell you about a time before uh, when Simone and uh, Rose were, uh, were around when actually Legal Aid funded a lot more than what Simone uh, talked about. Uh, Legal Aid used to cover many other programs and because of cutbacks or restrictions over time, some of that has been lost. Clinics have felt the same amount, the same things as well. And with, ex with some exceptions, uh, the funding has been re relatively restrictive. And as Simone pointed out, uh, our recent, uh, our current provincial government made some horrendous cuts in 2019 that had an impact on all legal aid services, including on the uh, community clinics. So there's never, and even in the good days, there were never enough resources to meet all the needs of, 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 of the communities we serve. And then my last point is the other challenge we often face, and won't surprise you based on what my, my, my previous comments were, are threats from governments. Because clinics, as you could tell from what we're talking about, uh, quite often are either challenging governments in court or we're challenging their allies and friends. And to, you know, to borrow a phrase and that, that, that was used in another area, uh, when a clinic is doing its job right, it's giving power to the afflicted and afflicting the powerful. And when you do that, you don't earn friends in high places. So clinics have often felt that pressure. And I can tell you that the clinic system Ontario is the most comprehensive clinic system in the world bar none, and that many other jurisdictions, both in Canada and elsewhere, have lost 
entirely lost their community clinic system because a government took the position that, well, why are we funding these people to, uh, to make trouble for us, to get in the way of our agenda, our efforts to hurt low-income people? It's easier if they didn't exist. So here in Ontario, I like to believe that we're fortunate and uh, for a number of reasons that we still have a community clinic model and we're still in there uh, uh, fighting. Thank you so much, Lenny. That was such a good overview. It's really helpful to have the historical context for how some of these ideas emerge and really how they're trying to respond to sort of our evolving understanding of what justice should look like and, and how to how to pursue our, our goals. Um, so we started a tiny bit late. There's a there's a chance that we may run a little bit past 4:30. Like I mentioned, if anyone needs to leave, we will be recording this. You're welcome to rejoin us. But for now, I want to flip to Rose, to tell us a little bit more about how Courthouse Duty Council works. Certainly, thank you. I'm going to uh, try to share my screen now. Um, not very good at this, so I'm gonna see what I have to click. Okay, does that work? Perfect. Okay, great. So uh, thank you for having me. And uh, my name's Rose and I've been a Criminal Duty Council with Legal Aid Ontario for 15 years now. So I just like to start off by sharing my first encounter with Duty Council. And it's a very embarrassing story. Uh, I was in first year university and I had one of, one of the assignments was to go to a courthouse and observe and write a paper about it. And I remember I, uh, you know, I was 19 and I went to a courthouse. I went to 1911 Eglinton, which is where I work now. And I remember going into a plea court and seeing a client, uh, you know, talking about his, his case and he had a lawyer and I was thinking to myself, oh, this poor client can't even pick his own lawyer. Is this lawyer even any good? And I was talking about duty counsel. So really a misconception mis uh, of what duty counsel is. And I'm very embarrassed when I found that paper I wrote many, many years later when I'm working as duty counsel at Scarborough so embarrassed about what I wrote. So I do want to say, um, and Simone talked about it very passionately in her in her talk earlier, what is the role of duty counsel? And specifically, what is the role of youth criminal duty counsel? So uh, as Simone indicated, we are lawyers who work for Legal Aid Ontario. Um, there is sometimes that misconception uh, that we're not lawyers, but we, we do. We, we went to law school and we were called to the bar. Uh, we do provide free legal advice to people on their day of court if they financially qualify. So um, I, I do like the analogy that we are like a ER doctor. So we, we are pre-COVID working in the courthouse and it's like an emergency room situation where uh, we're the staff lawyer on duty, um, helping triage the, the flow of clients who come into the courthouse. A lot of people have never stepped in stepped foot into a courthouse and try to help them navigate the system. But specifically for Youth Duty Council, uh, we do provide assistance with bail hearings. So when you're first arrested by the police, you're brought into custody, we do help uh, youth with their bail hearings. We also give summary legal advice. So um, on their day of court, and if they financially qualify, we will review their case with them and provide them some legal advice to point them in the right direction. And if necessary, we can also help them with uh, negotiating the best possible resolution with the Crown. And those are called, uh, noted as Crown pretrials. 
And as indicated before, a lot of a lot of the cases are resolved outside of trial. So as a youth criminal duty counsel, we try to negotiate the best possible outcome for, for the young person without having the need to go to trial. In addition, we also help young people um, get their cases diverted through something called EJS or extrajudicial sanctions. And I'll talk briefly about that later on in a moment. Um, in addition to that, we also assist youth with, with guilty pleas. Um, and I can say that as duty counsel for 15 years, I can count on perhaps two hands how many times I've, I've put a young person out as much as possible. We try to divert cases. We try to resolve the case without a plea because of uh, the potential consequences of a, a youth record that could have on a young person. Um, I've also put stars uh, in, the, in the slide, a crown caution and a reprimand. And I'll go into that in a, in a little bit more detail on the next few slides. Um, in addition to the services I have outlined as, as duty counsel, as the youth duty counsel, I also try to connect the young person to all the resources in the community um, and also the resources within the courthouse. So that could include connecting the young person to a youth mental health worker, um, to a school liaison worker with the Toronto District School Board, for example. And if it's an Indigenous youth, we hook them up with the Aboriginal court worker. And in addition to that, there's other resources that are very helpful, such as a diversion, a youth justice committee, the youth probation officers. So we really want to get the youth connected to try to help them solve their case in the best way possible. Um, and as Simone mentioned, uh, Youth Duty Council, we don't assist with trials. So if it gets to a point where the young person um, case is, is going to trial or it's a bit too complicated, then we would suggest that the young person get counsel. And there's a section under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, uh, section 25, where if a young person is denied legal aid, they can appeal their uh, refusal to a judge. And the judge, uh, according to the section, can overturn that refusal and have a lawyer appointed through the certificate uh, process. So a young person has every right and has this very important right to be represented by a lawyer, be it duty counsel, be it private counsel. And certainly if the young person wants to take it to trial, they have the ability to get a legal aid certificate and hire a lawyer. So um, I wanna give you an example of a case. And this is a case that uh, it's quite meaningful to me out of many, many cases that I've done. And it kind of explains in a nutshell what we do as a, a youth duty counsel. So I remember a time when I was in youth court and there was a young person who came up and assisted him with getting his disclosure, getting his next court date. But there was something about this young person and I saw his mom and his older brother in the, in the gallery of the court. And I knew just, I guess, just been working so long in the criminal justice system, you know when there's a story behind the case. I saw that he was charged with an assault and um, I told the young person after the adjournment, let's have a little chat outside of court, which we did. Got to review his disclosure with him and got to get his, his side of the story. And in a nutshell, the case was where he, his older brother and his mom, they were all charged in an incident where the mom had um, returned the rental car to the rental agency, perhaps five to 10 minutes late. And so the, the car rental agency wanted to, to charge the mom an extra day for the car rental. 
there was a, a lot of arguments back and forth. Ultimately, mom was charged with assault with a weapon and the two, the young person was charged with assault and his brother who was an adult was charged with assault as well. So um, I got his side of the story and essentially he, he thought that his mom was being bullied and assaulted by the car agency staff and he was trying to come and defend his mom. Um, and I read the disclosure and the way that it was painted by the, the police synopsis or the police summary, it didn't, it didn't show exactly what happened. So I got his side of the story, got him to uh, tell me a little bit more about him, him as the person. Because as, as the youth lawyer of the duty council, you want to, I want to be able to present his side of, uh, of the story, and, but more importantly, to bring out the person behind the name, behind the charge. Um, I went to a crown, I explained his version of events, told him this is, this is a young person's first encounter with the police, never been charged before, a good kid. Um, and the Crown took what I had to say, got some input from the officer in charge, and decided ultimately, after he brought in some reference letters, uh, you know, school transcripts, that kind of thing, he decided to withdraw the young person's case. Um, the mom had to sign a peace bond, but ultimately her charges were withdrawn as well, likewise with the brother. Uh, so that is, that is uh, an example of what we do from, for a case where we can review the disclosure, get the story, negotiate with the Crown and get the charge withdrawn. Um, and I remember this mom a few months later during Christmas time, he, she called me just to say, you know, is there anything I can do? Um, can I give you something? Of course, I can't take anything just doing my job here. But she said something to me where, you know, my son said after his whole experience, he, he wants to go to law school. He wants to become a lawyer and see how he can help other people who are part of the, who get involved with the criminal justice system. And to me, that is just, you know, sometimes duty counsel, you're so bogged down with the hundreds of cases that we do. And these are the cases that really make it worthwhile for, um, and, and meaningful. And, um, I think about him from time to time, and hopefully one day he does become a lawyer and help out with Legal Aid Ontario. Um, so I want to move on to uh, what's called, I, I mentioned earlier, what's called extrajudicial, extrajudicial sanctions, or EJS for short. And it's a way for the, the criminal justice system to divert young people from the court. We don't want young people in the court. Um, it's different from what's called extrajudicial measures. So this is something, for example, uh, where a, a teenager, you know, is caught stealing something from the store. Police are called. Police can attend at the store and say, well, I'm going to exercise my, dis my discretion. I'm going to give you a caution. I'm not going to charge you, but don't do it again. So that young person has never, is not even going to get anything and not gonna, going to need to go to court. But if the police officer does decide to lay a charge and, the, and now this young person has to come to court, um, the Crown can look at the case and, and decide to divert it, so divert it out of the criminal justice system. And so as Youth Duty Council, if we get a case screened for EJS, we would sit down with a young person, go through the, the synopsis or the disclosure, and see if this is something that the young person can take responsibility for. And if it is indeed something that he or she can, he, uh, the young person can sign up for the diversion program. Um, and meet with the with the youth worker. They set up something for them to do. It could be uh, community service. It could be um, 
stop shoplifting program, or it could even be if the young person was charged with a minor assault to uh, meet like a, it's like a mediation, a youth justice committee mediation where the young person and the, and the victim or the complainant would meet and talk about what happened and find a middle ground and try to understand both, both sides. And then ultimately, when the young person finishes this program, the charge is withdrawn. Um, what I put here on the slide is that the record is, is kept on file. So the record that the young person completed EJS is kept on their youth file for two years. And I start that because um, I wanted to draw your attention to that, it's very important. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit why. So um, say, uh, before I talk about that, but say a young person is not offered EJS. Um, so the young person is required to plead guilty to their case. Uh, these are some specific outcomes that could happen if a young person pleads guilty. I won't go through all of them, but you can see listed what's here. But I put a star beside reprimand. And what a reprimand is, is that say, for example, a young person is charged with assault, assaulting his sister and, you, and, and the police lay a charge. The young person can actually be offered a plea deal to plead guilty. And the sentence or, or the, the punishment the Crown is seeking is called a reprimand. And this include, this involves the judge kind of waving the, his or her finger at the young person saying, don't do this again. And that's, and that's it, that's the sentence. Um, why the youth sentence or the outcome has been important is because of this particular section in the Youth Criminal Justice Act uh, under section uh, 119 subsection two, periods of access. Again, I won't go through the entire list. You can see here um, what the period of access is depending on the outcome. So I guess something to think about as a youth duty counsel is what is the best outcome for the client? So you'll see if the client finished EJS, um, the record that this client took part in EJS will stay within the period of access for two years after the young person completed EJS. So that means if within two years, the young person, uh, sorry, within two years, if someone wanted to get access to the records and the, and the Youth Criminal Justice Act outlines who may be uh, entitled to do so, um, if they try to access that within the two years after the EHS is, is uh, completed, they can. But you'll notice if a young person got a reprimand, so finger waving, wagging, <laughs> waving by the judge, uh, or the charge got withdrawn, then it only stays on the youth uh, period of access for two months. So, so these are kind of things to think about. Um, what effect should the outcome, uh, how long will the outcome have, effect have on the young person? Um, I wanted to note here at the bottom of the slide, I put effect of an adult conviction on a youth record. So I, I've noticed a lot of times that young people come when we speak to them at court and we ask them when they're over 18, so do you have a record? And they, they said, no, I don't have a record. Uh, but in fact, that when they were under 18, they had like many, many dealings with the criminal justice system. And in fact, they had many entries, but they thought that once they turn 18, that that record is entirely gone. It's not true. In fact, it depends on the period of access. So just a quick example, if an 18 year old is uh, charged with a, an offense 
and he's he or she's planning to plead guilty just to get it done and over with. We really need to look and see, is there a youth record out there lingering? And is it still within the, the access period? And so the question will be, if the client pleads guilty within that access period, then the youth record will remain a permanent, permanent part of that person's record. And this is a huge effect on a young person. Um, so I thought that would be something interesting to, to highlight and bring up uh, to, share, to share with you. Um, so finally, I wanted to just uh, indicate what we do primarily as Youth Duty Council are bail hearings. So bail hearings are a very, very important stage of the, of the criminal proceedings, determines um, you know, how, often how the case would proceed. If you're, you get bail, you can have time to, to set trial dates and fight your case at trial. But if you get denied bail, you're stuck in custody. And that changes kind of what you wanted, what, uh, what next, your next steps would be. Um, so in a bail hearing, it, what that means is after the young person is arrested, uh, is held in custody, brought to court, and um, in all youth bail hearings, the Crown attorney bears the onus to show to the court why this young person should be kept in custody. Why is it a risk for this young person to be released back in the community? Um, some things to keep in mind in the youth criminal justice system, detention is the last resort. We don't want young people in jail. Um, so as duty counsel, we fight as much as possible to get them released in the, in the least restrictive sense. And um, a lot of times I find in my experience with working with youth in custody, a lot of times there's, there, there's no plan there's no plan to get them out. There's no, there's no parent to help them, for example. But something to keep in mind, the youth just justice system is not a place to substitute for, for child protection or for, for mental health issues because the young person's not getting any help in the community. So, so, you know, let's keep them in jail so they can at least get some help or for any other social measures. That, that's not the case. So um, we need to get the young people on bail. Something that's also different in the youth uh, court is that there's something called a responsible person. So uh, what that means is uh, in the adult system, if you're trying to get bail, you'll have a surety possibly who could come and bail you out. And in a young person's case, if you, if, if the lawyer has exhausted, you know, all possible bail plans and the judges, the justice of the peace is just not buying it, this young person has a, a terrible track record, there's something called a responsible person. And what that means is, well, uh, you can propose someone to be a surety, but in addition, if the young person does screw up on bail, uh, then this responsible person could potentially be charged criminally as well for not ensuring that the young person follows through. So it's just an extra layer, I guess, uh, an extra chance for the young person to try for bail. And then finally, just wanted to, to, to wrap up in terms of the bail, uh, there's something called a bail de novo. So the difference in, in that is in the adult system, if you get denied bail at the uh, first level of on, uh, the Ontario Court of Justice, you could apply uh, for an appeal at a higher court, but that could take weeks to happen. But for a young person, what's different is if you get denied bail uh, by a justice of the peace, you can apply for new bail within three days. Again, that reflects just the fact that we don't want young people in custody. So there's all these uh, safety measures that can, um, can address that. 
And then finally here, I put a referral to Children's Aid. It just means that if a young person doesn't have a guardian or parent who comes to assist with bail, uh, duty council, we are obligated to call Children's Aid to, to ask them to assist as a, as a guardian. Uh, so I spoke very quickly. If there's any other more information, please feel free to uh, reach out or you can check out these websites here um, that provide some very useful information. And then finally, I just wanted to say thank you to all the teachers. Um, I was really uh, excited to speak today because I actually remember when I was in grade 12 and I, taught, I took my law class and uh, I was very inspired by my teacher. And I just wanted to say thank you for all that you do for the young people today. Thank you so much, Rose. That was really, really, really helpful to hear. Um, we have a, a number of teachers still hanging on the line. I'm gonna give them a second to submit if there are any questions before we go. I do have one or two here, um, but I'm also mindful of the time. Um, we have, someone's asking about, um, trying to keep young people out of custody. Is this a, like a, is this just a policy of duty council or is this uh, an idea that exists in other places in the law? Oh, so definitely not a particular to duty council. It's, it's very much a principle of, uh, as part of the law under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Um, we don't want young people to be uh, in custody. We, we wanna focus on rehabilitation and re reintegration. That's great. Um, I guess maybe as a, as a last question, unless anything else rolls in, um, all three of you have worked for quite a while in, in and around the legal aid system. Um, what, why do you guys think uh, lawyers choose to work in the legal aid system in your experience? I realize it's a big question. It'll vary for different people, but what do you think? It's obviously it's the money. It's the oh bucks. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, you know what, I, um, my first day in law school, I went to law school to go into health law and public policy. That's my background is actually in sciences. Like I have a bachelor of science and I went to Dalhousie because I said, okay, well, I don't know what to do with my life. So I'll go into government and do something policy wise. And I felt strongly about things like assisted suicide that should have maybe given me like, anyway, so my first day, I had my first class and that was criminal law. And uh, like 20 minutes in, I looked around at my classmates and all I could think was, oh my God, we're all gonna apply to jobs in criminal law and there's gonna be no jobs left because everyone's obviously gonna wanna only practice this and defend people. Like, I'm not kidding you like that was literally, it was, it was like a giant bug just bit me right then and there. And I called my dad, who's a lawyer after that first class. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to be a criminal lawyer. And he's like, you've taken one class. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And I, I was like, I, you know, I, I actually, I ended up summering and I didn't get a criminal law job first time around. Like I ended up um, going, I actually summered an article at a labor law firm, uh, which was really interesting. And they offered me an associate position in 2010, by the way, which was the massive, um, when everyone was fired and all the law firms were like, it was the giant recession. And, um, and I, I took it because my dad was like, a job is, you got to take a job. And I was like, okay. And then I did it for two months. And my partner, who's really quite smart, he just was like, if you love something, you've got to, 
you've got to turn it down. Like you've got to go and, and do something social justice which is what you want. So, you know, in terms of, I, I'd almost say social justice kind of picked me systemic advocacy and, and criminal justice. I also thought I wanted to be a crown um, in that first little bit. And it was one day or maybe two, but probably not one day of being duty counsel. when I realized I wanted to fight the system as opposed to being part of it. That's my story. Um, Makes sense. My, my, my sense is that the first year of law school, 80% of the of, of law students in year one all want to be Atticus Finch and they all want to, they went to law school because they were going to change the world. And then the second year, it's probably down to 40%. And then third year, it's the 20%, the people who all end up doing social justice and the legal aid uh, type work. And, uh, and it's because most of those people, and I, and I still regularly speak to law students, uh, and uh, I don't think it's changed in a significant, those numbers haven't changed in a significant uh, amount since, uh, since I was at law school. And I think that for that 20%, that's why they're lawyers. I mean, you know, quite frankly, for me, if I didn't have the opportunity to do social justice uh, work, I would have been a bike courier. It's not that we've never worked at a corporate law firm. It's just not, it was never an interest and in, uh, not something I would have gone to, uh, you know, that I went to law school for. Fair enough. Yes, um, I, I never thought I would be a criminal lawyer, quite frankly, but I knew that corporate law was not for me. And when I went to law school at Queens, I did have a chance to work in the uh, Queens Legal Aid or the student clinic um, uh, office. And I, I really enjoyed that work. And, um, you know, I signed up to be duty counsel for a three-year contract and I'm now here for 15 years. And I just love it wholeheartedly. I just, I, I miss being in the courthouse, quite frankly. Virtual court is very different. And um, I just appreciate and enjoy helping people navigate this very difficult system. Um, and hope we can go back soon. There you go. So these are the lawyers that your students will, will meet if they ever come to depend on the legal aid system. Um, our very last question, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. This has come in from Tanya. She says, hello, thank you for this amazing presentation. Do you find that there's family support for young people, especially working in Scarborough, where there's a huge marginalized community. What kind of supports are there for fam for young people going through family law processes? So is it support for family law or for support for young persons? Um, I, I think it's, it's for young people who are involved in family law processes. Oh, she's clarified, support for young people, yeah. In, in the criminal court? I think we're talking about in family court context and in Scarborough, ideally, yeah. So I don't, I can probably, I, I don't actually know specifically what family law services. If there's a family court, then there's definitely a family law in center at that court. So I would suggest going there. Um, there, there are duty counsel who provide full summary legal advice. Uh, there. So if you, that would be a great first step and DC are crazy knowledgeable um, about where to go and what to do. And if you need more help, they're very linked up with community organizations. So criminal court to context of families attend to assist with such things. So it's interesting because, um, and I mean, Rose can speak to a little bit of this, uh, you know, the D duty council and, and staff lawyers um, represent the youth, right? And uh, sometimes what happens is the family and the youth 
and I've had this actually happen in the in the adult context as well, where family members are really pushing for a specific thing, like, oh, just plead guilty and get it over with, just plead guilty and get it over with, or just do this, just do this. And, you know, they're not your clients. So what we really like to do, especially in the youth, and I'm going to let Rose actually take this because this is her, this is her bailiwick. But um, I can just tell you from, uh, you know, from a, oh, like a high level perspective, it's important um, that the person feels supported and not frightened. Like you don't want the person to feel like they're alone talking with some lawyer that they don't trust. But at the same time, it's really important to make sure that you're getting instructions from the client uh, and and not from the client who's being pressured to say something from uh, from their family, which sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. But I'll let Rose kind of handle that one. This is exactly yeah. what she does on a daily basis. So totally agree with Simone. Um, I, I actually started my presentation, but I forgot to mention it. Um, we do need to ask the client if they feel comfortable speaking to us alone, if if they don't, if they want their parent in the room when they talk. But I, I do have the same experience where parents pressure the young person, you know what, just take the EGS program, you'll get it done, you don't have to go to trial. And the young person trying to tell me, you know what, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I was defending myself or I, I never took the item. So I, I have to take instructions from the client. And if I see that the parent is trying to get in a word, not jiving with the young person's interest, I have to take the young person aside um, and, and speak to him or her privately. All right. I, I just want to say one more thank you to uh, all of our panelists who've made time uh, today to, to come and share this. This has been really, really useful. And I, I know our teacher audience is, is really going to appreciate having access to everything that you've just shared. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye.